0: Hey, it's Jared Johnson from Shift Forward Health, and here's what's gonna go down today. We have the flavor of the Week about Walmart's reported interest in acquiring ChenMed. As new details emerge about this potentially game-changing acquisition, are the headlines leading us to ignore some of the more important questions? I'll talk about that. Then James Gardner, our regular contributor, sits down with me to share thoughts on recent news stories, including Ross Brewer's departure at Walgreens, Blue Shield of California ripping up the PBM playbook, and much more. It's time to dive right in. Are you ready? Let's go. Flavor of the Week. Are headlines about disruptors causing us to ignore some of the more important questions? Bloomberg reports that Walmart is exploring purchasing a majority stake in ChenMed, the family-owned operator of primary care clinics for seniors. As of September 8th, a deal could still be weeks away, terms aren't finalized, and talks could still fall apart. And it's also possible a different potential buyer could emerge. I've read a lot of hot takes and informed views about this story. The most common questions being asked are, can it work and will it last? But as usual, the question that I don't see anyone else asking in a meaningful way is, Can this make healthcare easier for everyday people? Does this have the potential to provide access to consumer-first care for a greater portion of society? There's speculation about potential brand mismatches. Walmart's current healthcare play could be described as more accessible care for the uninsured and underinsured with full-price transparency, while ChenMed's family-owned, value-based, transformative care has a seemingly airtight reputation for doing whatever it takes to keep seniors healthy. There are posts questioning why Walmart would want to take on risk, and whether they just looked around at all the other acquisition-led growth strategies from their retail counterparts and realize that maybe this is one of their last chances to get in on the game. These do seem to be quasi-legitimate questions, but I want to offer a balanced view and provide some optimism. There are plenty of reasons why this could be a bad idea and fail. There are macroeconomic forces at work, such as CMS's proposed rule for reduced physician fees in 2024 that are causing everyone to scramble. But that doesn't mean that a potential partnership here can't or won't work. From my limited understanding based on interviews with senior leaders from both organizations, I'm bullish that there's a potential role roadmap here that provides shareholder value and greater access to consumer-first care. And whether it's these guys or Amazon and One Medical or CVS at Oak Street or Walgreens in Village MD or United and Optum or someone else who has yet to put their money where their brand is, it's clear that non-traditional players are pursuing success in different avenues than traditional provider organizations. And when someone finally cracks that code, we might wonder why we weren't more focused on consumers' needs all along. Let's keep a balanced view of every reported new deal so that we can keep consumers at the center of innovation. That's another way that we'll build the healthcare of tomorrow. And that's the flavor of the week. Everyone, let's get into the flow. It's time once again to welcome James Gardner to the program. James, welcome back.
1: Jared, it's delightful to be here. I've missed chatting with you. Yeah, it's been a little too long, but what have you been up to? Oh, just coming off an incredible summer. Some folks may have seen some pictures I shared of a canoeing trip up in Alaska. That was definitely bucket list material. So if that's your thing, reach out to me. I'll share more pictures.
0: Outstanding. Yes, that wasn't just like a one or two day trip. That was several weeks, as I recall. Yes, it was. Yes. Was everything. How about you? Myself, well, it's what I'm gearing up for personally. I'm actually gearing up for my annual Grand Canyon hiking trip. So this year's going to be a little longer where we're going rim to rim. So we've done, I've done rim to rim each of the last few years and we're looking forward to that, but we're going to go
1: there and back. So th- th- that's going to be awesome. <laughs> I'm excited that we both share such incredible passions and that we're still able to. Uh, um, it We got to find time for that.
0: I want to tell you one reason i was excited for us to get back together today is healthcare never seems to be short of headlines. <laughs> <And> so <laughs> there's so much going on. I thought it might be good just to synthesize what we can make of a few things that we're reading about, hearing about, watching other go down at the, this time. There is never a dull moment. Indeed. Indeed. And I don't know if it's necessarily like full sea changes that are going on right now, but there are some signals that... Of things that are to come that are always worth keeping our finger on the pulse and seeing what it could mean there are a couple of things that have been described as game changing or maybe the first domino to fall so why don't we just go back and forth on a couple of things that we've seen and been reading about and and i'd love to hear your your point of view on things i think the one that's right in the middle of that radar screen right now is the leadership change at walgreens So as many of our listeners know, Roz Brewer, who's been the CEO a little less than three years, is stepping down. And so Walgreens' healthcare playbook or strategy, if you will, can certainly be construed as possibly being up in the air there. What have you heard? What have you read? What do you think about?
1: Well, first of all, let's give a shout out to Roz. Um, She's an inspirational leader and comes came to Walgreens with an amazing pedigree, longtime CEO at Sam's Club, which is part of the Walmart empire but more recently was the Chief Operating Officer at Starbucks. So obviously a highly credentialed and respected leader. So we wish her the best, wherever whatever her path takes her. But yeah, her departure was unexpected, um, although perhaps somewhat expected in hindsight. Most obviously uh, the Walgreens stock has performed abysmally. It's it's trading recently where it was 15 years ago, and that's coming off a really rough 2023 and a really challenging August in particular. So. We can appreciate yeah there was pressure on her to um, make things move faster Um, she made a lot of bold moves you know some really sizable acquisitions Um, but perhaps there were questions about the wisdom of those or the ability of the team to actually deliver uh, deliver short-term results and um, yeah it came on the heels of their cfo departing earlier in the summer so maybe in in hindsight uh, the writing was on the wall i don't know what say you jared
0: yeah, I mean, a couple of thoughts. I mean, first and foremost, I agree. Hats off uh, to Roz Brewer and the leadership that she's provided over these years. She came on at a time when Walgreens hadn't really made clear its healthcare roadmap publicly, at least. You know, we didn't know what they were intending to do, how many billions of dollars they were intending to invest in acquisitions, and where they wanted to go from there. You know, we still primarily knew them as you know, as the corner drugstore, and they were the the beginnings of this journey kind of being made clear at that time, but uh, I I would agree that she has uh, provided leadership during a, a, a pretty substantial directional shift for them and expansion, and... We definitely don't consider that easy in any sense of the word at any point. One of the interesting things that came to mind to me was a a couple of comments that I read from analysts. One was by a reporter in the New York Times that said analysts were growing weary, kind of to your point of the lack of of healthcare leadership. Maybe that can be construed in so many ways, is that lack of understanding of, of what it's going to take to create a consumer health brand or a retail health brand in the midst of a consumer brand, I mean, to your point, Roz's background was from Starbucks. There's a learning curve no matter what. And so the, the, the flip side of that, that narrative is one that we want to be careful to convey at any point, which is it's so quick and maybe I'm just attuned to it. I see it all the time. Reactions to any headline of anything, any change, any leadership change, any downward financial performance, for any consumer brands in the space, people go immediately to, see, healthcare is complicated. <laughs> see, look how hard that is. See how challenging it is. Just let us, traditional providers, just let it stay with us. We'll keep doing it our way. And I think that's always been a little troublesome to me, <laughs> that that quick leap there. I think there is some truth to that, but the quick leap of saying, yeah, nobody should be in this space you know, I can't believe they even tried. Let's just let healthcare be provided in the same way it's always been. There's always, you know, a, a glimmer of, of hope in my mind of, I do feel like there's some place where everyone can coexist here. But it is not easy. And I think when we see the same things happen at Amazon or Walmart or wherever else, we see those same things. So that's where my mind goes uh, as part of this story. And again, not knowing any, not even close to any inside information. <laughs> I don't know what was behind this change other than, to your point, some some very disappointing stock performance, financial performance for the company.
1: So uh, in the meantime, they've uh, named an interim uh, CEO, uh, a fellow board member, and um, And as I understand it, there's an executive search underway um, to find a replacement. And we'll be watching the the profile of that new hire. But to to your point, I think we could expect to see someone with a more traditional healthcare background or someone who has a background at the intersection of retail and healthcare, which is a challenging uh, unicorn to find.
0: That's a really small pool.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It is. Yeah, it is. Um, So we'll we'll be watching that situation closely.
0: There are a couple of other leadership moves that have either been announced or taken effect and i do think these are kind of in different buckets there are different circumstances with each of these but the ceo of of one medical uh, amir dan rubin is leaving at the end of the year he's been there six years it doesn't appear you know we're not reading anything that that's linked to any financial performance or anything like that 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 it was unexpected necessarily He's been there a while. He oversaw this transition to the to the Amazon umbrella here. Are you seeing anything, reading anything, or what, what do you think about that move?
1: No, again, we don't have any uh, insider information, but it would seem to me that when there are acquisitions, oftentimes the leadership stays on during the transition contractually as, as part of the uh, acquisition arrangements, but they're free to move on after, in this case, just about a year. Um, so that's an important milestone. But, uh, contractually, he probably had obligations, but maybe he wants to start another company or go into. to... You know, something smaller than the Amazon juggernaut. I did notice that the COO of One Medical is stepping into the leadership role. So that suggests uh, that Amazon's staying the course. They're not dramatically doing a 360 and um, you know, revisiting strategic decisions and whatnot. That was just a, a footnote I noticed uh, in parsing the uh, the news that I the, was reading.
0: Yeah, interesting. And then the, the third one, so these all either took place or were announced August 31st or September 1st. <laughs> so all within a day of each other. But Daniel Fink, that was the president of Aetna, that was announced actually back in April, but he was stepping down for health reasons. And so Brian Kane is the incoming new president of Aetna. He had been the CFO previously. So he oversaw their primary care business there. So yeah, not a big step there. And, and again, for what appears to be a an unrelated reason compared to the other two. But it still goes to show, you know, it just brings up this fact to me of, I think, I mentioned it last week in the flavor of the week uh, or recently of just I want to acknowledge the challenge that exists for any incoming leader for any of these these organizations, because the reality is that and I think this is where people's minds go to right off the bat is that the vision of retail health doesn't necessarily align with shareholders quarterly expectations. And that's just part of the reality. So you bring in an incoming leader in any capacity for whatever circumstance, and that's the reality they face, they still just have 24 hours in a day, right? Like it's not like regardless of how magical anyone thinks they can be, (laughs) there's only so much they can do. And they're limited by not only the restraints and constraints of the industry, but also the financial performance of their organizations. It's just the, the an additional layer of complexity to what's possible. I think most people out there are rooting for more options for healthcare. I, I'd like to believe of that. Of course, <laughs> you know, it's 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 just that thought of well, where does it come from, and why should they get to do it? Why shouldn't somebody else do it instead? So yeah, it's just that confluence of, of factors when I see announcements like this.
1: Your point is well taken. This is not a time for anyone to be smug because um, we all live in glass houses and throwing stones uh, accomplishes nothing. And you're you're, you're right on that. There's an unbelievable number of moving parts and complexities that make these jobs some of the, the toughest in the world, never mind the industry.
0: For sure. All right, uh, James, What? Let, let's go to what you're thinking, what you're seeing. What are you seeing out there lately? Well, I've
1: been following uh, some breaking news in the world of um, generative AI or generative uh, artificial intelligence. Known to most of us as ChatGPT, but there's obviously other examples. And I've been following um, developments amongst some of the major publishers uh, in the online world. We're talking the New York Times, Disney, Reuters, and whatnot. And they've, they're reacting to growing uh, anxiety about the use of their content, uh, which obviously has immense value, uh, was created at immense cost, uh, given its quality and the fact that they're investing in really high-quality journalism. And they've made moves to block ChatGPT's web crawlers, which effectively shuts the learning model uh, out of using that uh, for training purposes. And they're asserting that um, you know they know that some of their content has already been consumed as in the learning model, and in their minds, that violates copyright. So that's an interesting collision between two giants in the world. But I ask people in the healthcare world, what does this mean for us? Obviously, we're not publishing giants, but many of us actually do create a substantial amount of original high-quality journalism uh, or research. We know that it's being uh, incorporated to training models and... It begs the question: How do we how do we feel about that? Uh, is it something that's actually um, a problem, or is it something that actually is aligned with the academic mission of disseminating knowledge? So that's a, a bit of breaking news, and I would encourage everyone to give that thought. How do you feel about your content uh, being consumed and being incorporated into training models? Does that concern you, or actually doesn't excite you? And I think there's a case to be made on both sides of that argument.
0: Yeah, isn't this kind of an extension of the entire debate of publishing healthcare-related content from established medical institutions? Way back in the you know the early days of social media and SEO and organic content, and that being a keystone of marketing strategy, which it's still a big piece of a marketing strategy, but it is not as much of a keystone as it as it used to be. It's not one of those those key parts of a strategy simply because there are only so many other channels we have to figure out and and, and have as part of your strategy.
1: I think yeah, the crux of the concern here and what makes it different, I think from traditional search optimization is um, traditionally search results uh, lead to a click through uh, and a visitor to your site where you can, theoretically monetize that interaction convert them to a, a customer or maybe extract a donation or whatnot with ai training models they're consuming your knowledge uh, but then they're transforming and synthesizing it and the visitor never ends up on your site in fact you're not even getting citations in a lot of cases so even if someone wanted to get to the source of the knowledge they can't do that and that really rubs a lot of people the wrong way
0: it does so that's the evolution right so it's been referred to as zero click content yeah so the phenomenon that less than 50% of yes of any search results at least in google lead to a click outside of a google property so that and that continues to drop year over year Yes. So that's that's one of the realities there, you know, from a marketing standpoint. I remember that being just su- such a revelation I guess when I'd see someone like Cleveland Clinic and what they've been able to build, which is not only lauded by other healthcare institutions but by the content marketing world at large everyone recognizes the value of what they're doing and acknowledges how much of a leader they are in the space so the volume of content they've created the volume of traffic they've been able to generate to that content the business value they've been able to derive from it is, i don't know of anyone who does it bigger or better so yeah they're going to be at the at the forefront of that discussion what do you what do you think you know you're if you're like a marketing leader at a hospital or health system what are you thinking are the possibilities of, of it affecting something you're doing
1: well I, I sense that um, many organizations are going to find themselves between a rock and a hard place. Obviously, there's concern. And Amanda Todorovic from Cleveland Clinic weighed in um, on my LinkedIn post and acknowledged as much that um, they're concerned about their investment in publishing and content. They know the value of what they've created and the effort that went into creating it. At the same time, they do feel the larger academic mission of Cleveland Clinic to disseminate knowledge to the world and improve healthcare for everyone. And that's... A direction that would suggest making your content available to Google, making it available to OpenAI, and um, it's obviously the source of much discussion uh, at Cleveland Clinic, and it should be the source of discussion wherever great content is being created. You know, I'm thinking Mayo Clinic, I'm thinking Johns Hopkins Medicine, and other leaders where there's an archive of just really, really valuable content that um, should not just be the subject of apathy. Uh, it needs to be the source of discussion and debate as to what the right strategic direction should be
0: yeah so if this falls the same way as other major developments that were just consuming our attention at least in the digital marketing realm back in the day it always feels like there's either a leader or a a player like a google you know someone who changes the rules and said or apple who says all of a sudden okay i know you're all worrying about this and this here's how you have to do it these are the rules you have to play by like we're just going to set that for you and everyone gets to play by those rules Mm. at some point somebody it seems like might have to lead a general direction right now i just hear a lot of questions and not a you know a lot of not a lot of answers rightfully so this is breaking news to your point this is something that it's not like somebody seems to have figured out right away or at least not what i'm seeing that a lot of institutions are just starting to ask the questions and recognize the potential impact on uh, their ability to derive any value from content that they're creating like to your point of what, what Amanda shared on your post. I'll just add, and
1: then we can move on. There's also the reality that if you don't um, share your content with OpenAI, um, that important factual information um, that you actually want in the public sphere won't be picked up. And I'm thinking like clinician profiles um, or locations. If those aren't part of the, the learning model, ChatGPT will rely on third-party sources, many of which might not be reliable or accurate. So that's also a a consideration that you want your information portrayed accurately in the public sphere. What else is on your mind? We've kind of beat that topic around.
0: No, I think that was great. Well, it was another flavor of the week that I recently just dove into just a little bit which was the Blue Shield of California, their move to end their 15-year PBM relationship with CVS and replace it with a couple of other players, notably Amazon and Mark Cuban Cosplus Drug Company. And then they also have a, a company, Abarca, to process their drug claims. So the piece I read was about whether this is ripping up the PBM playbook. And so, you know, the, the thought was that, you know, is this basically a first domino to fall? Like, is this providing a roadmap for other health plans to change the status quo. And that's what caught my attention. You know, I'm reading some of the quotes from some of the leaders involved, especially Paul Markovich, the CEO of Blue Shield of California. He just said, basically, like, "There, this is incredibly complex but it's designed to flip everything on its head. The current pharmacy supply chain, he calls it a forest of opacity and profit. Yes. I thought that that was interesting because those are still existing relationships. And the point that CVS is still going to be used, well, CVS Caremark is still going to be used by these guys for specialty drugs. So especially for patients with complex conditions, but the online pharmacies will provide services for everything else. So Amazon and Mark Cuban, Cost Plus Drug Company. I guess where it, where drew my attention the most was first and foremost that disruptive thinking the innovative thinking of yeah i know everyone's done it this way we've done it this way for the last 15 years just with cvs but yes. is there another way to do it they were motivated at least outwardly by cost savings so this plan is expected to save the company 500 million dollars a year when it's fully operational that's not till 2025 but that's about 10 to 15 percent of their total costs for prescriptions so that's always been part of like the yin and yang of providers versus health plans right there are some natural incentives for a health plan to find cost savings and to roll those back to a member they're trying to provide value to a member versus provide a service to a patient and there's there's a lot of intersection but there's some some yin and yang there if you will it's a
1: fascinating situation i agree and um if nothing else, we should applaud Blue Shield of California for making a bold move. PBMs are notoriously complex. I, I won't even pretend that I understand their economic model, but we know it's incredibly lucrative. We know the spend on pharmaceuticals is immense. The fact that you can save $500 million a year, that's still only, what, 10 or 15% of the total spend. So the, the size of the spend is just staggering. I guess what I'll be watching is, will other insurers make similar moves. If so, yeah, that'll be crushing for the um, marks of the world, the Express Scripts of the world, and other leading PBMs. But today, I think it's a one-off.
0: Yeah, it is. It is. From what we've seen, you know, we haven't seen any other dominoes fall, so to speak, at this point. The other interesting part of it was if they really are saying that that's that's their potential cost savings, that's their expected savings, but they also said that they. Will be uh, rolling back some of those cost savings to their members as well, and I'm like, okay, that's on public record. (laughs) That's in a couple of of stories, and like, so you know, it remains to be seen. It doesn't even start taking effect until January of 2024. It's not fully in effect until the following year. So there's some time before we we know whether or not that's the case. But the fact that they're saying like we are motivated to do this, this is what this is why we're making this change, and we will be rolling, you know, some of those costs savings down to our our members. That's not typical language, I guess, that I hear, at least, again, out in the public sphere, out in a, a news story. And I, I like that. I like the the motivation to do something that's good for the business and for the consumer. Because you know, here we are sitting a lot of times on the provider side of things, you and I in particular, and Zane as well, we do bring up a lot of consumer brands or non-traditional brands that are providing healthcare services now. But we're still mostly on the provider side, and we don't dive as deep on the health plan side for the most part. Maybe that's just, you know, our backgrounds or whatnot, but consumers still think of it all the same. <laughs> I need to go somewhere to fill up, you know, to get a prescription and they need somewhere to fulfill that prescription. And if someone along the way is making that easier, then that benefits the consumer. It does. It so does. it is, yeah, it's part of that consumer experience, if you will. And it's just a good reminder to me, I guess, ultimately to not think of consumer experience as just what's being provided by the provider. There are other aspects of a healthcare journey and even a health journey that are part of a consumer experience that aren't always coming from the provider. And so it helps me to open my view a little bit.
1: I think that's a really important point. And I think most people would acknowledge that the payment payment for healthcare services is perhaps one of the most broken uh, parts of the healthcare journey. Um, Insurers are notoriously unliked. Um, What they're selling is very complex. We prefer not to have to buy it at all. And then when we do go to use it, Uh, we realize all the limitations inherent in prior authorizations and reimbursements and whatnot. Um, So to the kind we're focused you and I and Zane on the holistic consumer experience, we probably should be paying more attention to the payer side of the equation.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think there's a lot we can learn there, not just because they are naturally aligned in, in some ways to add either preventive measures, you know, preventive health care uh, food as medicine you know a lot of things that when you're looking at a whole health view of of things how do we improve the health care of you know the people in this country how do we reduce costs it's not just improving things in their in their individual silos, and I guess that's another reason, maybe, why this caught attention was that they were willing to challenge the status quo, and they feel like they have a way to do it successfully, and that's bringing up a mindset that we we still just don't see that often. We see a lot of big claims of of revolutionizing healthcare, and then we you know we see those kind of crash and burn a lot of times uh, at all at all sizes and shapes. So yeah, I, I agree. I think it's a great reminder there.
1: I'd ask our listeners, if um, if y'all are connected in the world of, of pairs and you know disruptors and people that are focused on the, the patient experience and the patient journey the way we are, um, let us know. Um, we'd love speakers. We'd love insight um, so that we can do justice to the role they play in the delivery of care.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Thanks for bringing that up. Uh, Anything else on your mind, James? Uh, I'll swing that back to you. Anything else we haven't discussed? Uh,
1: I'm watching with some interest uh, a move by primary care physicians at Alina Health in Minnesota to form a union. Uh, Did you see that in the news, Jared? I did. I did. What's your take? It's obviously unprecedented, I would think, um, for professionals, um, among them uh, physicians, of course, but also, I believe, uh, PAs and NPs are, are joining this move as I understand it, driven by a sense of disrespect, perhaps, lack of uh, fair compensation, poor hours, just a general unease with the the work environment. And um, I don't understand yet if if the union has been formed or if they're just taking it to a vote, but that could be uh, something that spreads to other systems because there certainly is a lot of anxiety and and, uh, unhappiness around compensation and around staff shortages uh, and all the things that go into a happy work environment. Did you have a take, Joe?
0: Well, I think just at a surface level again, no insider information i I just read a story or two about it too, and you know the very first thing that came to mind was just the thought of okay if if doctors and other healthcare providers feel the need to unionize like some something's not right <laughs> the traditional you know historically at least yeah. over hundreds of years, right the industrial revolution, right unionizing was primarily for uh, a certain class of workers who felt disrespected for for it sounds like a lot of the same reasons they knew they uh, they deserved better compensation uh, they deserved better conditions they felt disrespected this is the way for them to to change those things so now you're sitting at people who are in many cases near the top of that e- economic food chain who are feeling that way mm-hmm. like there's this is just at a macro level how many years now have we heard yeah yeah doctors and nurses and and PAs Providers are feeling burnt out, but now someone's doing something about it, and they're not just saying you need you need to hire more doctors. You know, I can't work hundred hours a week, hundred plus hours a week. Uh, you're killing us someone's doing something about it. And you're right. I don't know if there's, I don't know what stage it is now. If, if something has been formed, if it's just gone to a vote, but the thought of just, here's where healthcare is right now. I think that's where my mind goes. That that feels like an imbalance, a disturbance in the force, if you will, (laughs) like something's not quite right anymore.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it is. It should be a wake up call uh, for leaders at other health systems. Ask yourself how your clinicians are being treated. And if you've got, nurses or doctors that are being overworked that aren't being compensated fairly, or they're not being respected. This could serve as a catalyst for unionization moves n- nationwide. It introduces yet another complexity into the operating of a, of a health system to have a unionized workforce. It's it's sad and disappointing that it's come to this. You, know, you, you should never get to this point where people are that angry or that um, unhappy.
0: Yeah, agreed. Agreed. Well, that's great. I think we covered a lot today. I think there's, as always, like we said, things are always moving. Uh, there's going to be a continual evolution of a lot of the topics we discussed now today. But I want to thank you as usual for joining me and sharing your perspective
1: on these things. Oh, thanks for having me, Jared. I always enjoy these conversations. And you're so right. There's never a dull week in the healthcare world. So let's do this again and uh, sooner rather than later.
0: For sure. For sure. I want to thank James Gardner for joining me on the show today and I want to thank everyone for listening and tune in next time. Thanks, Jared. Thanks, everyone. Thanks again.